this course. Um, so it's part of the Masters in Music and Music Education, which is like an accelerated master's. It's like only 10 months. And the courses, they have like a full day of courses all day long. And they're only like three weeks long or something or like a month long or something. And so they're not doing like research research. It's like, here, I want you to go look at this article and find it or something. So I'm not necessarily having to teach them how to like, you know, build search strings and queries and stuff. But and then in a, in a week, I'm going to be doing like citation. And, uh, Do you have like, loop guides there? No, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of the benefit of when you're doing a one-off of libguides is just have like here's a guide a course guide and you just hand it off to them well what i so we have we're a microsoft ecosystem and we do have like sharepoint yeah. and like there is like a library sharepoint but the courses are using something called like bright talk or bright space i think it's an add-on for blackboard yeah which i don't have access to but like i would love to make guides for that so the professor is emailing like the director of the program and getting me set up because i want to write out guides and and stuff like in general i was just listening uh it sounds like quite a day and a super intense program so yeah it's for uh, people who want to like be music teachers and so they're learning like the history of music education while also like learning basics of instruments that they aren't trained in just to be music teachers. And so all of this getting a master's degree in, in 10 months, there's an online version too, that people can take longer because like if they have like a job already and stuff. I imagine most people doing it. Do you have to have a master's to teach there like high school or K-12? Cause some States do, but Florida didn't. I would have to check with Massachusetts, but this program does, you get accreditation as part of it as well, like for teaching. Yeah, it's super easy in Florida to get certified as a teacher. Yeah, I took the general knowledge test. It was the easiest test I've ever taken. Yeah, I'd have to look up. It's interesting because most people are coming from either like conservatory backgrounds or straight up just like, you know, even outside of that. But music backgrounds where they're in a master's program, but like they haven't learned how to do citations or anything really. So it's an interesting environment. I always wondered how you trained to be a music teacher because you have to teach like, I mean, you mostly teach a lot of percussion, but you have to teach like recorders and singing. Or and like woodwinds and like strings and all sorts of stuff. If you're the band director, yeah. Yeah, that's what, yeah, like music teachers. I have not done a podcast before, so. (gasps) It's easy. You just uh, talk. Sure. I'm Justin. I'm a Skullcom librarian. My pronouns are he and him. I'm Jay. I'm a music librarian, and my pronouns are he, him. And we have a guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Scarlett Galvin. I'm the collection strategist librarian at Grand Valley State University in Allendale, Michigan, and I generally use she, her, hers. Welcome. Did you lose the mute button again? Nope, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to be here. So, I don't have a segment. Anyone see any tweets that got them annoyed? I've been off Twitter. I've just been watching a lot of anime because I'm depressed. Not related to libraries. (laughs) Oh, I mean, yeah. (laughs) There was some discourse um, the past couple days, but I can't. Yeah. I can't think of library things, though. I feel like there's less library Twitter drama recently. Yeah. Also, I've been passing out like at like 8 p.m. because I've been walking 12 miles a day. <laughs> so and that's yeah. that's also a new job, right? So that's yeah. I always have to sleep a lot whenever I have switched jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I see like school library stuff pop up here and there with like the book bannings and like yeah, like cop moms like wanting to look at curriculum and like docs library workers and stuff but they've made it to the uk now which is not surprising but the whole turf brigade surprised it took them this long (laughs) yeah gotten mad at drag queen story hours in the uk now i mean the the rate at which they're picking up our bad habits is accelerating 
you know, I know we have cultural hegemony in the U.S., but, you know, come on, guys, get your own thing. Up yours, woke moralists. We'll see who cancels who. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ever Peters- going to get rid of that one. Jordan Peters is my I don't, favorite. I don't think you ever can. Oh, uh, it's so good. I love, I was in like a little, let's do like a meetup and ask each other questions and we'll give each other book recommendations based off of it. And one of the ones that someone got asked was like, oh, what's a book that like you like couldn't finish? And the person said 12 rules for life. And I like in the chat went like, that's because Jordan Peterson sucks. (laughs) And someone else laughed. And then someone went like, hey, now. And then started talking about how good Jordan Peterson was and his like maps of meeting or whatever, like his first book that's like a hot mess of whatever. And I'm like sitting here like, uh oh. He really had a he really had a chance to become the the guy who keeps cranking out those books every once in a while. They're like weird neoliberal ideas. Oh god, I'm completely blanking on his name. But people real he's real popular like seven or eight years ago and he would just release a book every once in a while that was like violence is historical lows everything is getting better it was just pure ideology oh is it there are so many people it's it's distressing to me i was trying to think of who that might be and realized exactly how many how many white guy authors that that might apply to and it it lagged my brain a little bit so hang on i got it Steven Pinker. That's who it is. Ah, oh, not on my list, but you know what? If you had given me a minute, I would have gotten through Michael Gladwell or, or Malcolm Gladwell and maybe Steven Pinker. That's right. He kind of, he's kind of, you know, waiting for the singularity so he can reunite with his dad, right? I need to remember if that's him or somebody else. I think that's, I think that's Steven Pinker. Yeah, I just, there was a span of time in the 2010s where he just came out with a book every couple of years and everyone just went, like a bunch of people liked it, and then a bunch of people went, "This is shit." Like this is a bad argument. I was about to say, Scarlett, like, isn't that the plot of Contact? I think kind of. Um, well, yeah. No, wait. <laughs> this might be different, or I might have gotten this wrong, or both people might have published something along sort of the similar line. But it's either Stephen Pinker or Ray Kurzweil who is a hundred percent the singularity is going to happen, and I just sort of look at what Amazon will recommend me and think, no, we are nowhere near what you're talking about and won't be for some time, if only because the people who would stand to gain the most from having that level of technology aren't using it. No, I don't need another non-perishable thing that should last me 10 years, but thanks. Now I want to rewatch Contact. You'll see in Contact. Which one is Contact? Is that the one with the writing system? No, that's not. No, that's the- Jodie no, Foster fun. in space. Jodie Foster windsurfing with her dead dad on a beach. Because of Aliens and Matthew McConaughey's in it. And it's written by Carl Sagan and it's a beautiful meditation on uh, faith and science and how they're not so different. And it slaps. It's great. <laughs> Stephen Pinker writes some stuff about AI, but I, I don't, he just, I think he's more of like a human level AI, a general AI is coming in like 10 years and it's going to be bad for us. Aren't the AI bros like really into like some like doom or death cult shit right now? I mean, there's always been that strain. You've had like the Rokos Basilisk yeah. kind of people who just can't do philosophy because they refuse to read a book that's not like shit science fiction. Yeah, like the oh god, what is the um that one online website forum thing? I don't know, but apparently they got some like AI death cult doomer forums going around ai recalibration or something like that but it's like it's getting kind of death cult apparently i'm like adjacent (laughs) to that on twitter for some reason but i don't know anything about ai i know how to make it make me tweets and pictures of muppets doing different stuff i I like the ones where it makes like marks do things (laughs) dolly is really getting some heat like recently. Yeah. yeah, like we should do an episode on Dolly and like copyright because I see people obviously I I I agree with some of the takes, but also the people that say it's copyright infringement, I think they're wrong, but I might be wrong. So it's, it's just not written into copyright law, but like because the law only applies to persons, so like you would have to make also, an AI a person. And also the work being generated, it's transformative. It's like remix culture. They're not trying to distribute the original works. Right. That's kind of yeah. the crux of the issue. 
Yeah. But it's it's also like um I guess the idea is just like unfettered access to things of making copies for research purposes is like I guess people don't find that very compelling, even though it's like one of the most important like <laughs> I find that compelling. <laughs> Unless you're in academia, it's not an exception you think about much, like copyright exceptions for research purposes. Most of the time it's like critique or stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and and I think like the questions of like legality is its own thing, but like questions of like legality and stuff are different than just how people feel about it. Like people can still be like, this is gross and wrong and it might be, but it's still not technically violating copyright law or it can't because it's AI. (laughs) And I was thinking about it today with uh, electronic music. And like, cause uh, I've been listening to like really shitty anime music in the intros <laughs> and uh, I keep wondering like, okay, these drums are probably fake. I wonder if the guitars are fake, if they're all like on the computer, if they're all beep boop. And then like one day AI will just generate music and the only good music will be intentionally shitty music because you know, a human made it. My dad uses this software called band in the box a lot. Cause like he, um, he plays guitar and he sings, but that's it. And he often will like write like demos for studios that then like they'll have other artists like where the like the, where the studio has its own library of like, oh, here are songs you can pick from. And then like, you know, artists who can come in and be like, oh, yeah, I like this one and like record it, you know, whatever. And my dad will use band in the box for all the instruments that he can't play. I mean, obviously, like drums is kind of hard and he's not using violins or anything because no one's gotten MIDI vibrato, right? But otherwise, like you can't really tell and he's just using like, because it's country music. So it's like very basic standard like licks and stuff. Yeah, it's weird. He's been doing it for years. (laughs) Like it's been that good for a while. I feel like country is probably one of the ones that's easier to sell for. Yeah, I think you have a lot of people who just buy it more. That's kind of a that's a, one of the characters in questionable content. That's like his whole job is he writes shitty yeah. country songs and sells them, and he like hates doing it, but it makes no, him my, a ton of money. No, my my dad's a good song writer. He likes it, so he just like does it in his bedroom. So Scarlett, I wanted you to come on because you have recently taken up a new position at Spark. Um, do you want to tell me about it? Because I am I haven't been keeping up with the call for like the application process and everything. So I kind of have missed what the job is for. Sure. So um, Spark put out a, a call for visiting program officers uh, in a couple of different are- arenas. One is for privacy. Uh, there's another for open models and uh, one for negotiation. The role continues on what Catelyn Carter built. She's over at Helios now um, as their project manager, or project coordinator. Uh, I can't remember. And one of the things that I've been trying to do professionally in, in terms of finding a place, because it's taken me a while to do that a little bit, has been to go toward people who seem to like what I do and seem to be doing things that are similar or have aligned goals. And so I uh, asked about the VPO roles because I noticed I'm on the steering committee for Spark as well and, and noticed that they hadn't you know, made any kind of announcement about uh, hiring for that. And so I reached out and talked with them about the search and it seemed to be a good fit. So as far as, you know, any sort of interview process, it was uh, one of the better ones I've had, if only because it was an actual frank discussion about what people were looking for in the role and the job and what different candidates wanted to do. So in that sense, it was pretty positive. What the VPO role for negotiations is going to do is continue the work with the uh, community of practice that's already been built that has a bunch of subgroups that have to do with things like data analysis and reinvestment after we cancel things and trying to get closer toward open. And I think one of the goals uh, with that program is kind of marshalling a lot of the energy and maybe bravery or courage, although I really hate using those words to describe that work that we need to have in order to have a better, I guess, or different even relationship with uh, third-party vendors. It's Since it's close, it's closely related to the work I'm doing for the day job, I guess, which makes it sound like I'm a superhero later where I just sort of put on the OA costume and go yell at Elsevier reps, but that's where it's at now. And so it seemed like it was, you know, in the end when I talked with um, Nick Chucky and, and Heather Joseph about it. Uh, it 
ended up naming a lot of service work that I was doing already. So it was useful that way. I'm thinking that the goal sort of with this particular VPO is to see all of the ways that licensing contracts and privacy and infrastructure and sort of how all the conversations that we're having are really running in parallel. So that's what I'd like to do. Yeah, I think it probably is all running in parallel with the job itself. So you have your regular job at GVSU. And then how much time is the VPO? Is it like the time sharing agreement with your employer? Or is it like over the 40 hours? Like, I've always been curious how these kind of positions work. So there's how they're written to work and then what's happening in practice, right? Uh So for, for me, it's basically a donation of what would be different forms of service. And for the VPOs, it can range. Mine is 20%. So about a day out of my work week. But so much of the work that I would be doing overlaps with my job that, you know, those percentages are a little bit more fuzzy in my case than they might be for someone coming from outside of tech services or collection management. But that's how that works. There's an agreement that runs through my appointing officer and also with uh, with Spark on their end. And we sort of work out what portions of the day or what portions of my time that ends up being. It's about eight hours a week of time to the organization. Yeah. So it's similar to like developers for open source projects, things like people who develop DSpace, things like that. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, DSpace, Folio, those kinds of things that would be really similar to that. Yeah. It would be nice if all my service was kind of just like compiled into one thing. That would actually be, uh, I'm I'm kind of uh, spearheading a, a conference right now and it's kind of annoying that I'm only a committee chair given how much work I've put into it. Uh, So it's not going to look that great on my CV. But maybe that means next year I get to be on the steering committee or something. So we'll see what happens. But I'm always curious how to wiggle my way onto stuff like this. Yeah, I think uh, it was a gradual process for me. I started to, I I think I got picked up by one of the OpenCon community calls, which is also, you know, a project that, that Spark isn't pretty heavily involved with. And I think that's how I showed up on their radar. So I think those sort of, related and affiliated stuff. And I sort of slowly moved further, you know, further on people's radars and things just because I started to become more visible, I think, you know, in that particular space. It's not a thing they teach you how to do in library school. No, it is not. But just like negotiation isn't right. But that is, you know, I think something is figuring out, you know, what the what the network is and and what it looks like and maybe how to get there. I just got very lucky, I think, in that instance where finally it seemed like I said, here is a thing that I do. And if you want me to do it, it seems like you won't, for example, hire me to do something, be really excited about the skills I might bring and then completely berate and demean that same skill set when I show up. Not that that's happened to anybody here, um, but it's just nice to have that alignment, I guess. Yeah. When you when we were just saying they don't teach you this in library school, you're actually working on a grant that's awarded from the IMLS on developing negotiations education with I think it was IU I always forget IUP yeah U, what is it it's so long IUPUI okay yeah, yeah. It is. yeah. <laughs> same same front and back okay yeah I believe they use UIPUI which I could never get out reasonably so I I say the whole acronym and then. Belmont University as well. I'm working with uh, with Catherine Macy and Courtney Furzon on putting that together and developing an OER around it just because the need is there so much. And we can lean on library school quite a bit in terms of, you know, when they've been responsible for really great education and, you know, also when they've been completely culpable as degree mills. You know, both, both of those things can be absolutely true. And this was something where I think, you know, the group of us decided it's it's not going to be their job. It has to you know be people who are in and then have recently graduated or who are sort of being given this. Here we know this is a thing now. How do we do it? Just working from that kind of deficit is is awfully difficult on these sorts of projects. But we're trying to marshal all of it and and make it more possible for us to go negotiate. Yeah, it's so it's so strange when these things are so new and yet there's a, such a resistance to hiring and training new people. I think because it's just experience is missing and people just aren't confident about training librarians. This is kind of a discussion on Twitter the other day. People were talking about the the MLS and not wanting to train new employees like you have to. And so I, you know, I had a real tough time getting my first job, my first two years in. Uh, I know a lot of other people have too, but I, I saw a job that was a Skullcom job that just got reposted because I guess no one qualified that applied for it. So they had to redefine the job into an entry level position. 
Um, and I was like, you know, I felt a little vindicated by that every time I see that happen. And I'm like, yeah, it shouldn't have been that hard to get my foot in the door for even a specialization like collections or, or scholarly communications. You still need a pathway in there. And it just doesn't always exist. See, I was, um, I got an, and I get this, this, a version of this email occasionally. I've, I've started to notice about once every six months, I'll get a version of an email from somebody fairly high up uh, in their library's administration saying, why can't we hire for this position? Why aren't we getting the pool we want? What are we doing wrong? And probably 90% of the time, there are problems like, well, this is three jobs, and you have added these things into the required that. I can name the people who have that skill, you know, that, that I'm aware of. And it's such a small group of people, what are, you know, or even putting it on preferred. And I said, if we really look at what the work is, what the work of collections is, it's a huge amount of cultural work and relationship building. And if that's going to happen anyway, then do you really need someone, you know, who has the requisite three to five or two to three years of experience? Or do you need someone who that ends up being your job talk? Tell us how you figure out the culture. How do you make this work? You know, kind of things. They've reposted and have since been able to fill the position because it's not, you know, collections and e-resources and, hey, here are five liaison roles that we need. So that would be great if you could fill that too. And also be our assessment librarian and all these kinds of things that that happen. Jay, I've heard you mention in other episodes about how tech services and that sort of the broad bucket of what goes into tech services been absolutely gutted to the point where it's just you end up seeing these jobs where you're looking for the hybrid from Battlestar Galactica and that's going to run our that's just going to be our back of the house stuff. I think some of the more horrifying things that I have heard about the utility of libraries or people who should know better really asking questions about why we need staff have been generally directed at technical services. So it's been it's been interesting and fascinating and horrifying to to watch that happen over time. But there's this, there'll be this wave. We're we're almost due for another one of a bunch of people looking for e-resources, which by the way sounds like we discovered fire. I hate that we call it electronic resources. It's just there has to be something different or better. Collection strategist is kind of getting there, but does have that sort of business language stuff in it that I can't stand, but also know that it has a particular currency. But anyhow, it's almost there. We're almost due for another, oh God, we need an e-resources person wave. It's it's interesting to watch every time and who consistently keeps posting those jobs. I have been both incredibly lucky in my professional career getting jobs as well as have the reason that I've gotten incredibly lucky was also that like I've had a really hard time because I specialize in like you know cataloging and metadata uh, in grad school with a really nice mixture of theory and practice but you know there were no cataloging or metadata graduate assistantships and I did a practicum but and so when I was applying for like cataloging jobs and whatnot in academia I just wasn't getting them because I didn't have the experience especially not with specific. ILSs or hadn't done batch loading as if that's something you need to learn in grad school, right? I You could teach someone that in less than an afternoon. And my first job was a residency. And most residencies are more public services focused, right? They're like often reference or instruction. Every once in a while, you'll get a specialized one. And this was a sort of jack of all trades. And I did get some metadata and even like I did some archival processing in that one. And I published two articles about metadata in that time. And then when I went, you know, when that job was over and I went to apply for jobs, I had such a hard time that I was unemployed and living in a hotel for a few months and living off the good graces of Violet sharing my like GoFundMe (laughs) around, right? I remember when that happened. Mm -hmm. And the job that like UNH, when they hired me, like they knew I didn't have all the experience they were looking for. I, I had someone tell me like, cause I, I hadn't done any discovery stuff before. And they were like, yes, you have. I was like, what are you talking about? They're like, you've done instruction, haven't you? And you've used it as a patron, haven't you? And I was like, oh, God damn it. You're right. I know what it's like to use it on the front end. And so therefore on the back end, I would like actually know like what to think of and stuff. And that was the angle I took for the discovery part of the metadata and discovery. And that job like took a risk on me, but they saw that like, okay, yeah, I hadn't done like Primo before. 
but neither had any of them <laughs> because it was new to all of them. And they cared more about like, I obviously had like the drive and the ambition and kind of like the creativity for it instead of having all of the absolute skills that they were looking for. The job obviously did not work out for me <laughs> in the long run, but not because I didn't have the skills for it. I picked up Primo pretty easily. And my position now, like I'm a library director now. I mean, granted, library director means only librarian. <laughs> so I'm de facto the director. But it's of a music library. It's a conservatory. I don't have any degrees in music. I'm not a musicologist. I wasn't even allowed to take the music library job in grad school when I wanted to because I don't have a music degree, even though I had worked in a music library in undergrad, by the way. And this position didn't require a music degree. And, you know, I was very upfront with them that, like, I very much do sort of have like a jack of all trades experience, but that, like, my main training and stuff was in metadata. And that there are things in this, you know, there are more things than metadata in this job, including like budgets and shit. And they obviously could see I had never done that. And they hired me anyway, with the full like realization that like, they've, they're also retooling the position. And so that it might be bumpy for a little bit, because everyone's adjusting, and I'm learning as I go. And they knew that all of my positions have been like, we know this is new, or that we're redoing it. And so we know it's going to be bumpy, and that you're going to be learning. And I think the reason why I've had I had trouble getting other jobs was because places weren't willing to look beyond the oh you don't have the exact skill set we're looking for by see ya um, like a lot, not enough places are like yeah like you can just train someone but also like you have to be willing to take a risk sometimes on on people and risk it being a little bumpy for a few months maybe up to a year as everyone's adjusting and figuring things out. Because everyone, no matter how much experience you have, is going to have to learn something and figure things out because no two jobs are the same, even if you're in the same field. And I don't think places realize yeah. that risk is always part of it. That was my spiel. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, uh, it's it's absolutely the case, and I think that there's there's something kind of there's something kind of insidious. I think about the way that hiring committees and and hiring in in academia but in particular in, in libraries will will function in that we instead of saying fit so you have this you have this group of people who tend to end up on search committees who know that they can't say fit anymore because because it's such a, a dog whistle so now you know they're smart enough to know that they can't say that anymore and so we'll say things like oh well they would just this particular candidate would need more support right but but when you, you're smart enough to know that you can't say fit anymore, but then aren't, you know, with it enough to build any kind of support that your existing employees probably need, because onboarding isn't just a moment. It happens Especially all the time. Especially in tech services where things yes. change so quickly. I know. And the, the ask for, you know, specific software is increasingly ridiculous to me because you have to go, you know, get certified anyway. That's where your initial communities are going to be. So who has the interest and again, the creativity to go in and problem solve as opposed to someone who has all of their Primo and Alma certifications and has never thought critically once about the ILS or its role in how we deliver knowledge to students. Uh, so it's, it's a question of who you want and whether or not the risk is even measurable when we're talking about hiring for creativity and back of the house sort of jobs. Yeah, my job's kind of weird in that we have a pretty solid group of tech services people but they're they're very much not mentored very well so it's it's kind of very lucky that our tech services group is as strong as it is just like it really seems by accident we just we have we always have to hire people in from from building them up so there's a certain amount of understanding that like we're training you on the job because like people don't move here yeah that's understandable or if they move here they'll move away eventually you know in four or five years you know and so Oh, I was going to say that when you're learning how to apply for those first jobs, it's kind of like bartending in that you just lie about your experience to a certain extent because there's no other way to be like, oh, I, I took a class on this and that's going to help. Like it's that's not going to do anything for you. You just have to be like, oh, I, I have worked with this, obviously, because you just have to think creatively about how you've worked with it or uh, be kind of vague about your extent of admin control you had over the the software or whatever it is. A certain amount of, you know, sort of case making that goes into it, like the the spinning of, well, I've experienced it as a user. 
and having somebody respond with, you know, that was a really creative way to answer the question. And so what you're not really being assessed on in that moment is your ability realized on paper or not. It's how well you were able to answer the question, which again is a, is a them problem. Mm -hmm. Our situation at my library has been pretty lucky in the sense that the main ways that we kind of recruit are people who are already working in the library, who are doing library degrees, or people who are doing their their practicum, who come to us for like the summer before they graduate. And we get to kind of see like, oh, do we want to hire this person? And it's, it's you know, that's how we've gotten a few people, like really good people, because you just get to see how good or not they are at, at adapting to, you know, or what interests they have and just go, oh, they would fit perfectly doing this. That's how we got our OER librarian. And they're amazing. So we got really lucky with that. Going back to collections, though, or negotiations and, and collections with the with the IMLS grant. Oh, come on, man. It's fucking people revving their cars outside my window all day and night with, with the, the grant that you're doing. What's the, the OER outcomes, like, are, is it going to be like one text? Is it going to be a series of courses? Is it going to be a program that's affiliated with the universities that are creating it? Like, how is, uh, how are you imagining the final product of it's going to be? Uh, so it'll be a, it'll be a course that'll be sort of distributed and hosted in a couple of different places, but we are going to maintain a centralized landing page for it uh, through, through Spark uh, is going to design and host the landing page for a lot of the resources that will get produced. They'll include case studies and that are heavily fictionalized from people's experiences uh, trying to do this kind of work and, uh, you know, create, creating, you know, a lot of learning modules around a few different aspects of what the, what members of the community have asked for. So we're going to hold three different forums. Those will go out, information about those will go out soon and I'll be sure to send it over that we'll sort of look at different things about how, how what you're doing when you negotiate a contract really determines a lot of how you get to use the resource. And so we can talk about privacy all we want. We can talk about all these things that we claim are values, but ultimately those relationships play out in the contract. And so without a strong one, without one that protects or even manages or acknowledges the relationship between the third-party vendor and the library, you're going to have some difficulty. And so what we'd like, I think, for the outcome to be for the grant is to have a resource that does get built and, and added onto so that people can figure out where they're starting from. If that's, we need to figure out what values we want to have represented in our contract language, like the work that Syracuse has done, uh, some of the work that I've done with the collection development policy here locally, and lots of other sort of value-based projects. We see more of that around privacy and surveillance. And a lot of the more, I think, intense conversations that I've had with not necessarily administrators here, but in other positions where I've had to say, we have to object to this about money. We can't object to it about privacy or a vendor releasing what we're defining as PII, because here's all the other agreements you told me we had to arrange that absolutely hand over a ton of information about our users. You can't get riled up because Safari changed their authentication or O'Reilly or whatever it's calling itself now. Taco Bell, it will all be Taco Bell, will all be acquired by Clarivate someday and we'll have one no. invoice. One invoice. Don't curse Taco Bell like that. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> I'm at the combination Clarivate and Taco Bell. Don't you put that out Which in the world, <laughs> Justin? Don't you do that I'm to sure me. I'm sure that it already has no. happened, right? No Taco I'm Bell. I'm at the Clarivate. I'm at the Taco Bell. Oh my God, stop. All right. <laughs> I love Taco Bell too much. Don't do that to me. If you ruin Crunchwraps for me because of this, that's it. I can't. Anyway. <laughs> I have to have my cheesy bean and rice burritos. Like, I, I kind of will shrivel up if I don't have one a week. It's just, it's, them's the facts. It'll be a reception catered by Taco Bell, sponsored by Clarivate. That's what'll happen. I'm going to shut my laptop. <laughs> uh, oh, for God's sake, no. Now that thought's in the universe. I'm so sorry. <laughs> because I've wanted to kind of have a contract negotiation framework in terms of like, Here's what we want going forward. So we can tell people we have a policy now that means we don't want these things like non-disclosure agreements. We don't want these uh, privacy infringing agreements. And the more I've 
toyed with the idea, the more I realized that negotiation is really outside of our hands as a university because so much of it is consortial. I mean, how are people dealing with that? So... I think I think it depends. A, a, a lot of it has to do with some. Sometimes you have a you know sort of a consortium that functions as a buying club, and I think that that's been the model for consortia for a long time. And you're seeing more of I think consortia that are either by design with something like say California, you know, where you get into sort of big state school consortia places, or um, you know, SUNY is another example where you're going to start to lean a little bit more, have the value discussion earlier than a lot of other places would, where it's still kind of a, a buying club. Well, we can get, you know, a four percent increase instead of a six percent one, and we're gonna call that a good deal and outsource a lot of the expertise to consortia, which may or may not work as effectively as it could for us. I don't know that I if I have signed a deal at the consortia level that is as good or better than something I could have gotten. But it's also interesting to see kind of looser organizations and that they um, are more project-based and not so much the the buying club model. You look at something like Ivy Plus Confederation of Libraries, and it's more what are the projects that all of us can do together rather than being let's get the best deal on the thing that we all agree to buy. And so that's it involves, I think, a different a different set of a different skill set and a different kind of expertise when you're talking about getting a bunch of people in the same consortia together to um, decide what we're, what our values are going to be and kind of get at the statement that you're talking about. Like Neural's Better Deal was, you know, one of the first public statements that they've made in, I don't know, at least 10 years. But it's because it was sort of a sleepier buyer's club price is going to be what we pay attention to on this sort of consortia. And now you've got people that are interested in saying and saying things more explicitly and saying, here's we need to have more equitable terms. This is not sustainable and the future is going to be shared, at least in in the immediate sense. They're not going to be able to completely pivot 100% to data analytics. It depends. And and the I think the only way that you get the super active people involved in the consortia is, again, by leaning on more labor that we don't necessarily have time for because there's less people and people are sort of focusing their priorities in and they're either going to be values aligned or not. And, and say, you know, kind of like University of North Texas brings this up too in their expectations for vendors document, which is one of the first things like it to actually come out and say, here's what we're wanting to sign. It's literally saying, here's how to do business with us and still, you know, having to fight for more equitable stuff. So I don't mean to give you a lawyerly answer back, but but that's where we're at. I love me a lawyerly answer. I should have been a lawyer in another life. It's my worst trait. <laughs> you still can. Lots of uh, lots of JD MLSs out there. Speaking of, of jobs that don't need a JD, but I did see one that was like a, a head of Skullcom that required a JD, which I thought was very strange. I walk through parts of like Harvard Commons and, and have it. Yeah, a lot now. Will I get one by osmosis? Like I can pretend I'm illegally blonde. Will that yeah. work? Yeah, that should work, right? Or Happy Death Day. I don't know that one. That, is that a Harvard? Oh, it's a horror movie where um, it's like Groundhog Day, except oh, fuck um, yeah. the, the lady's getting murdered. And so she has to figure out who her killer is. So like every day she wakes up in like a dorm room and then like knows she's going to get killed. I watched like, was it Polish or Ukrainian or Czech or something film like that at Sundance in 2020, which is a sentence I just said called Coco D Coco Day. It's on Shudder, I saw, and it's like a Groundhog Day. Um, And it was one of those where it's like people were going like, oh, come on in the theater and some people were starting to walk out and then all of a sudden like ah and then everyone was just like yeah because they had to like try to figure it out every day i've never been in a rowdier um uh screening of something before it rolled yeah i mean we have a coalition in texas that the library coalition for united access that was put together to renegotiate elsevier contracts and uh that got put together and then just immediately shut out all the skullcom people and so it was pretty much centrally negotiated and really only the deans were in on it. And because it was a huge coalition, I mean, I, you know, you could only expect so much, but even with the biggest coalition ever, I think, uh, for a negotiation like this, Elsevier just out negotiated them and, and split the pot and gave like half of them a better deal and half of them a worse deal. I mean, it's, it's still like active, but I mean, like I'm in their discord. And I don't see any like action happening in there. I don't see anyone really talking. 
So like there's collections people pulled in, but it, it's, it just seems uh, like it failed. And so I just wonder, I, I probably saw UNT's framework for vendor agreements or, or whatever it's titled. And that was where I got the idea to do one at my university. But you know, I, I, I still am kind of locked out of a lot of the contract process, unless it's something I specifically overseeing like B press or I think even B press, I didn't even see the full contract for a while. It just went straight to our contract people like press books and a couple other things where I actually got to see it before we sent it off. And I imagine that sort of thing going back to our discussion, like last week about just vendor right, tech, tech services, labor of uh, like lib guides becoming this, this massive thing that libraries are sort of sunk into paying for. Yeah, I've had conversations with a couple of folks who have moved into, you know, sort of new subject area responsibilities. And one of the things that they're consistently told is, well, you can work on libguides, right? It becomes this thing that if you're not sure how to orient yourself in a position, it becomes the thing, well, you inherited these libguides, so it's time for you to go fix them when, or to otherwise look at them when, you know, without necessarily looking at any of the data behind it. One of the things that I've talked with a liaison here about was, here is the data from all of the things, at least that we have access to, or that we can reasonably point at as as being kind of accurate, because use data is weird in that particular discipline, and, and say, you know, here's what's happening. Here's how much of that is getting used on which particular libguides, because you have to figure out how to focus your attention. And people will spend so much time attention on something that they're not even using as a shortcut for themselves, you know, sort of in the way that you're mentioning about if I if I only have 20 minutes in a classroom, here's a short link, here's everything I'm going to cover, you can, you know, sort of come with me. But people will spend a truly intense amount of labor maintaining these things that I don't know have the utility that we want them to. So it's it's been interesting to watch them get bigger and more springy, as it were. And, and a lot of it, too, is, you know, some places will need the full suite of things that that particular vendor offers because campus IT is so deeply hostile to the idea of somebody having a password or maybe, you know, maintaining a web page that has, you know, information about the library on it that they're so, or, the, you know, the university marketing has gotten in there and they're so aggressively controlling the way that the branding comes out. And if you don't have the same font, then you're not going to, you know, all these, you know, kind of rules and restrictions, or we're going to insist on really bad UX kind of things that can happen where all those interests collide. And of course, if you tell campus IT how library contracts work or how library systems work, they sort of look at you like you've grown a second or third head because, no other software functions like this, you know, we're in the same way. Or you'll have someone say, wait, is it just an inventory system? Well, yes. <laughs> and, and there are these things called mark records. And, you know, by the way, our search is managed by an invisible, pretty crappy, you know, algorithm that can't even catch up to the current ingest of Wikipedia kind of kind of things, which, by the way, we're paying thousands, thousands of dollars for and devote at least one staff member's labor to. So it's just kind of, it's interesting to watch all of that happen. So I understand why. Springshare has developed in the way that it has. And again, there's an advocacy piece there. There's a identity piece. There's a owning any sense of expertise piece there. And that if we did that more confidently as a group in our organizations, we might get a lot farther. But at the same time, I've seen some really horrible libguides. And I think if I looked at the systems that, that people were allowed into, and then those people asked me, can we design our own? Can we maintain our own? I would probably say no, and with really good reason, and point at a bunch of terrible libguides to justify it. So, so it's interesting to watch where, where we're gaining agency and where we might kind of lean on those things more as a group. I don't like the idea of necessarily leaving consortia as a solution, but I do need the negotiators in consortia generally to be a lot more assertive than they have been. And to do the facilitation that it takes to get us least on the same page about anything at all, even if it's the iterative stuff, like we're just not going to have an NDA. That's it. That's the goal for this round, right? Or any number of other things about, I don't know, threat metrics is sitting in the back of Science Direct. Like, why the hell is that? <laughs> any of these other things, like we, we don't have to go 100% every goal all the time, although it would be useful to come out, the, out of the gate swinging more often, but just starting from anywhere would be helpful in a lot of these places that are just sort of strictly buyers clubs. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of my feeling with the Texas consortium was I felt that the negotiator didn't understand why you need 
such a huge consortium to go against Elsevier. They just saw, okay, well, here's a contract. I want a better contract. We're going to have more leverage to get a better contract. Rather than seeing like the way we do scholarly communication is broken in a lot of fundamental ways and the way that our, our relationships with these vendors are broken. And that's something we're going to realign it didn't, I don't think ever occur to them, you know, in, in terms of, you know, as bad as transformative agreements were, we didn't even get a good transformative agreement out of it. We didn't even get APCs covered. So it was like, you know, I mean, it just was a lose, lose. I just felt like they were completely routed and, and just got, got outmaneuvered. You yeah. have a note in here about uh, precarious jobs and residencies that are strategic. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, a little. And I'm sorry for not being a little bit more, I, I guess, with it. I don't, I don't ever do podcasts. So, um, you know, once you edit out all the terrible things I've said, cause I'm tired, um, I, I will, uh, have you, you listened know. to this podcast? <laughs> I have listened to this podcast. Um, but I'll get in trouble. I take us on journeys uh, that we never come back from. It's fine. All right. I'll, I'll try. I'll try to feel better about it. So, I have noticed job postings for the people who get in, and I understand that funding for positions is funding for positions, and you need to get them in. I have seen more residency type and visiting type positions that have strategy in them, that have something to do with project management or strategic planning, or you know, all of these other things that are just huge multi-year cultural initiatives. And most work in in libraries is that. So really all residencies are kind of inadequate that way. And I understand they set people off in the right direction. Three years is not enough to, I think, establish the kind of relationships you need in order to get at that kind of work. And so, you know, I forget where it was that posted that they wanted this basically, I don't know, some sort of strategic engagement, something or other. And it was, you know, again, this sort of term limited two and a half year appointment, which realistically you only get maybe 18 months of work because you were moving and adjusting to moving if it's not remote. And of course it's not remote because that always goes against the branding of these places. God forbid we have anybody remote working. And then you were spending the last section of that frantically looking for other employment, right? Because you're in this. So there's no way that you're ever really focused on the work except for that weird midpoint where people are still figuring out if they want to trust you. And I was really surprised to see something that critical attached to an inherently precarious position. And just sort of wondered, is it for pools? Are we going to get a different type of person? Is this a, are we going to hopefully transition it into something that's full time? How is this going to work? But it's just not clear from where it's sitting. So I've always, or someone will come on and be, well, you'll be the diversity initiative librarian or something like that. And it's kind of, well, no, this work actually belongs to everyone. Maybe they could do literally anything else. So we stop burning through people who take on those jobs. But I've seen more of that lately, and it's really distressing. Also, uh, Eamon Tool just, just tweeted this out recently since he's the head of something, I want to say, research and instruction at uh, Columbia. And he'd mentioned that Columbia had posted internships where they were paying 20 bucks an hour and it was remote. And I want to say it was for a year. I don't remember the details exactly. 400 applications to that job. Only some of those are because it's Columbia. More of those are because it's remote, 100%. And I think the other thing that's happening is this sense of what work absolutely needs to be done face-to-face when we do have a meeting, why are we having it? More of those questions are being asked. And I think the answers are really revealing a lot of people, real positions on things like disability, (laughs) and I think are also very revealing about why they come to work. One of the conversations I had in the before time, before the pandemic, was I remember telling somebody, I well, I was going to Australia at the time, I was speaking at Vala, which no one who's listening to this podcast will believe, but it in fact happened. And I was stunned and amazed. And I said, I'm going to be gone for this amount of time doing this once in a lifetime thing. And everybody who heard that, you know, really got nervous about the fact that I wouldn't be available. And this sort of continued on and it continued pretty intensely whenever anyone would take time off or take vacation or any anything like that. If you tended to not adhere to the sort of Puritan Calvinist weird work ethic of you have to be at work from this time to this time because this time of day is inherently more moral, you know, than other times. And if you work, show up later and work later, it's somehow you're less than and sort of, you know, dealing with that. And so finally, I just said, okay, so if work only happens at my actual desk in my actual 
cube in my actual space, then that means that I'm not going to answer emails at home anymore. And they were not pleased with that at all. I said, well, if it's not real work, then I'm not capable of answering emails at home. I have to wait until I get to my desk. I have to wait till I do all those things. And yeah, not pleased uh, with that. So, so it's interesting to see who is relying on presentism to sort of enforce their, their weird idea about what it means to be a leader or a manager or an administration. So I don't know why it means that I have to be observed at all times in some spaces and not in others. So yeah, that was a lot for that bullet point. Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, that's kind of the crux of the issue, right? Because I, I worry about this a lot as someone who supervises people, the, the, Temporary positions, that's something I worry about with because I'm working on a big grant for the first time and it'll be like a three-year grant. And part of it is I only want to take part in it if we can hire a librarian position for it, which would, of course, only be temporary because the odds of us moving it into, I mean, we would hopefully be able to move it into a full-time position. You know, three years later, we'll, we'll know it's coming. And we also, you know, have this whole thing, like I said, about building our talent because we know people aren't going to move here. So, I mean, hopefully it would work out, but I still get really nervous about the idea that we would move one of our MLS people out of a library associate job into a, a temporary grant funded job. That associate position would get filled and then they're out of a job in three years. And so that makes me really nervous to to do any kind of temporary hire like that where you know the deadline's coming. Um, but to do it for like operations, absolutely necessary stuff is is just a risk to the organization. But I mean, I don't care about the organization as much as people not getting screwed over because, you know, we can, we can delegate work in different ways if we have to, the organization will be fine. Right. And, and I think it's something to consider when we do want to grow people and, and, and be responsible for and, and kind of shepherd the d- development a little bit more is what happens when those term limited positions end, if they're being hired internally, can there be any kind of assurance that assuming th- everything's fine if the also it would mean not necessarily losing that position either instead of giving this particular you know staff line back to the university can we keep it in reserve or have the guarantee that a line like it you know gets returned to the library at this point you know in order to provide some level of security well i think in our in our position it would be we would have to fill it as soon as possible with someone else so that we don't lose it because otherwise the staff money would get swiped. And so there would be someone else in that position as soon as possible if we were lucky enough to get a hire before that's lost. But yeah, negotiations need strong scholarly communications experts, frameworks like control digital lending demand strong search and principled metadata. One of the things that I'm doing with Spark and one of the things that is, I think, going to be important when we're talking about broader strategy on the IMLS grant is that if we're going to do negotiation well, it doesn't occur in a vacuum. We need a lot of data from different sources, information and experience and being able to create those kind of scenarios and decide, okay, well, we're going to look at this as not just one collection, but our whole relationship with a vendor. What does that mean? Um, And so for me, I'm really lucky, you know, to have Matt Ruin, you know, and and the other scholarly communications folks at, at GVSU because, it meant that my entire negotiation around digital commons was informed by all of that work and also all of the, you know, sort of positioning of, of value and what it is that we're willing to to kind of throw down about and say and be able to come from a place of strength and say, this is what we're willing to do. This is what we're not. And so negotiations by nature need that strong, you know, Skullcom informed presentation. Because if you're not having those conversations with faculty, if you're not having those conversations about what we're doing is or isn't sustainable anymore, then it's just going to be too much of a shock to the system. If the library hasn't been positioned as an expert in its own collection, if you know we haven't done these things or we've had a, um, a, a terribly run process, like we see so many cancellations are just badly run, sort of like the situation you might be alluding to in Texas, then it it's, won't be as strong and it won't be as impactful as it might have been. When we look at, you know, Kyle Courtney talking about here's all of the quivers and the all of the arrows in the quiver thing, metaphor that he's you know really fond of using. If we're going to implement something like controlled digital lending, we need really strong, reliable search experiences that we manage and control. And we need principled people doing metadata and thinking broadly about how do we get this out there? How do we make things findable? And so all of these conversations end up happening sort of in par- in parallel and that I'm 
We've got something winding through shared governance right now that will state explicitly that OER, if it meets certain criteria, will count as a as a partic- in a particular category of scholarship for you if you are pre-tenure or going up for full, which for teaching faculty is going to be a huge win for us. I, I think we shouldn't rely on early career scholars' comfort level in how they want to argue their tenure case or their renewal case to determine whether or not OER is scholarship at your particular institution. It's got to come from a lot of different places. And so, but, you know, if you're not having a lot of those discussions, if you're not talking about privacy and open access and infrastructure that all this stuff runs on and that you need to appropriately staff it, then every decision that comes out of any kind of negotiations ends up being a shock. You know, it's just like weeding, right? You never do it all at once. Or if you do have to have some big catastrophic weeding project, then you hear stories about people bringing up the book dumpster at night and then filling it so that people won't see it and freak out because people have their weird container fetish thing about, oh my God, you're throwing books away. So so I don't know. I think that if it, unless it's done thoughtfully, it just sort of collapses in on itself. And that's part of what the VPO is going to do, hopefully, is mm-hmm. see all of those different opportunities and figure out how do we take them and how might we move together better? Because I don't know, especially when we talk about things like platforms, I don't know that, that I guess the don't want to say bravery or courage. I don't know maybe that the will is there to move, say, Alma in a reasonable direction. Just like I don't know that the will is there to get OCLC to move in a reasonable direction in terms of what it means to be a member body. But that's going to happen when you have an organization like that that has the research arm and then the business arm often sort of hitting each other in the same organization. So, but that's starting to happen a lot and you would think that they would have it sorted out by now, but the lawsuit's very strange. It'd be interesting to see what else comes out of it. Yeah. We'll have to do a follow-up episode whenever that, if anything interesting happens, I don't, I think it might peter out, but uh, if something interesting happens, that'll be fun. Also like Pearson getting into um, NFTs, they've, they've basically pulled in like a new um, CEO who's just like an NFT dude. And which is really like great time to jump on the bandwagon. But I really hope they do what the video game company Square Enix did, which is they sold off all of their IPs like Tomb Raider and like all these big name games. And they just threw it all into NFTs and they're losing all their money. And I just hope Pearson does that too, because that would just be pretty funny and good for the textbook market. Did you see, I think, um, I want to say it's on TikTok that there are a couple of students that are sitting on a Pearson handle and are just squatting on it because they're angry about how much they had to pay in textbooks this year. That's Hell awesome. Yes. Which is great. One of the best emails I ever got was Can we get them on? You should ask. I should find I should find that tweet. Um well, I mean it's just TikTok at Pearson. So yeah. yeah I think <laughs> we it can should do be, it. but yeah, I'm sure it is. So I got a, a an email while while it was being finalized and it was the worst to not be able to tweet or talk about it. But when Spark bought inclusive access and just sat on it to say, here's what's actually happening with those agreements. And I thought, this is amazing. We need to do more of that kind of activism. And I was excited to see it. And I'm always excited to see it from students. But so, yeah, more students need to go sit on on textbook domains <laughs> on social media. God, what is the Pearson's TikTok going to do anyway, besides be incredibly dorky? I'm going to go squat uh, Elsevier on truthsocial.com. I mean, isn't that basically what AJ's been doing? Yes. Hey, AJ, come <laughs> back on. He was an early guest. I think I've been a bad influence on him in, in terms you of his Twitter behavior. <laughs> I mean, by bad, you'd be amazing, right? <laughs> He's pulling like a Jabuki. <laughs> oh, man. I wonder if we could get Jabuki to do a Pearson tweet. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. We should get those kids on. Get them on. Yeah, that'd be fun. Work your magic. You're good at making us have, make friends. Yeah, Chuck Tingle still doesn't DM me back, so it doesn't always work. Most of the time it's worked. It works a surprising amount of times. Yeah. But need ideas for a new book title. Maybe he'll do it, right? Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I can I can AI generate some new ones. That's what you could do. We could do like a, what is it? It's a Chuck Tink, Tingle or, or not, Tingle or Fingle. It'd be like a, what is it? Not a, not a divine corpse. What's the art thing where you do Divination? like- Divination? No, where it's like- Someone will do something and then you cover it and then the next person does something and you cover it and it's like a divine corpse or. Oh, yeah. I've 
You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's something corpse um, yeah. drawing where somebody draws the head, someone draws the torso, and someone draws the legs. And But you don't get to see what yeah. the other person has done. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't Can't just have to be a, a corpse, but like it can be anything, but it's like three parts. But like we could do that where like me, Justin, and Sadie each like have to come up with a part of a Chuck Tingle book title. I called the pounded in the butt part, um, and I get to decide if it's pounded in the butt or if it's something else. Pounded in the dick. Pounded in the dick, yeah. I was just saying that people should say, uh, I was thinking this earlier today, but I couldn't get the tweet right, but I think people should say crushing dick more. I feel like that should just become a thing people say. I like Um, it. Yeah. Can can that be like our official like tagline of library punk? Library punk, crushing dick. (laughs) Crushing dick dot gay. A leftist library worker podcast. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. Truly. So, Scarlett, you uh, you did put one thing at the very end, which might be fun to talk about, but I... Sure. You had a student thing. Did you ever breathe, find the thread of your train of thought, potentially? No, it was uh, something about, like, you know, if students were interested in, in doing a collections job, I mean, it's, it's kind of a more mid... It's not really something you do as an entry level job, really. I don't think it feels like something like you've got to be at the right place at the right point in your career to really have control over either a certain amount of budget or to be in a specialized position. I just feel like there's, but do you have any advice for people who are interested? So, so I looked out quite a bit as far as my search went. By the time I had moved into academic libraries, I was pretty solidly, you know, come from a resource sharing background. So as a, you know, just a staff member while I was working and doing my MLIS on working nights, which I do not advise. I'd started that originally all the way back uh, when I was an undergrad. I'd done a kind of an internship in, in special collections and did not think about it ever again. And no one suggested working in libraries to me, which is a good thing because that was back in, I don't know, I think 2007 or 2008. So not good things would have happened, I think, if I had entered in at that time. But after that, I was just sort of always interested in how we're looking up things and how we're sort of passing through information or rather how information sort of passes over and through people. I think sort of as an artifact of having a really analog childhood and then getting to about middle school when there were suddenly grants for Macs in classrooms and suddenly they were sort of everywhere. So I have this really analog experience as a kid and then um, going to college had a very, you know, sort of, and now here's mosaic and it's going to change how you think about information. But so kind of starting out out there, I've always sort of had the background. And I think a lot of people, this is a rambly answer to your question, but I think a, a lot of people took a chance on somebody who was really interested in solving problems and thinking through sort of downstream effects of what a decision might mean. And it's not that you, I think, don't do that when you're in other spaces in the library, but I think it's absolutely the undercurrent of the work is trying to figure out a way to do it better. So you sort of become a Daft Punk song when you're working in in tech services. And I think that it's such a generous group of people too, who are always trying to work within the constraints they have to make sure everybody can get on with their stories. We don't know why people come into the library. We know some sense about it, but We want to make the thing that they're interacting with better. It doesn't always mean getting rid of the seams. And so I think that orientation toward problem solving and that actionable curiosity is probably what I look for more than anything when I'm looking at students or when I'm looking at people applying for jobs like that is sort of keeping the possible in front of mind and then figuring out what are the rules of my system? Which of those can I bend? Which of those can I take apart? And which of those can I meaningfully get others to advocate for when we talk about changing it? So, so I think that's what I, what I look at in terms of characteristics. It's definitely a job that people sort of find themselves in. And I, I wish that we were more friendly to, to crossing to crossing over for people who want to move, you know, maybe out of liaison or subject area jobs into tech services, think there's some definitely applicable things there. And also for people who might absolutely devastate in a classroom that we think can't for whatever reason, because, you know, we've been in collections the whole time. So so some of it is luck and some of it is, um, again, the, the orientation toward looking at a system and seeing what might be possible with it, as opposed to here's how it works. It's the only way that it works. And I'm going to do this thing I was taught and not investigate anything else because I'm afraid of breaking it. I don't know if that answers your question at all. No, and I think that applies generally to most librarian positions because you really don't want to just go in with the assumption that the system can't get any better. 
or that the user experience can't improve. So do you want to plug anything like your Twitter or upcoming publications, or do you want people to leave you alone? So people can, if they want to follow me, I'm Panoptigoth on Twitter. I'm doing more work with the community of practice. So if your library is a member of Spark, you'll hear more about that in terms of what some plans are with respect to how do we get the thing done together and do it well and effectively. And if you're not a member of Spark, you should encourage someone in your administration to reach out. We can do amazing things. We can do it collectively and together. We can build great, big, ungodly things that help it all function, which at times feels like a ridiculous goal when you're sort of working in libraries during the slow collapse of everything, right? This is truly the worst apocalypse. There's not even zombies and everything's going to happen really slowly. And so I think we've got to align ourselves with the people who are doing the work and well. Spark is just a group of people. You can fit the entire organization around a table and they're already able to accomplish more and do more than many other organizations. This time we support that kind of work and strength no matter where it comes from. Yeah. No, Spark's a really good resource. It's a shame that it's it's so difficult to well it was it was difficult for me to get a sell on on getting us as members, but it, it happened. I just had to be kind of tricky about how I did it. In terms of the market analysis that Spark puts out and the other things, uh, the communities of practice that exist and the other things that you don't have to be a member of Spark up, but you can get involved with some of their professional development and stuff. So you should definitely, um, especially if you're a graduate student looking to go into um, scholarly communications areas or collections areas or really uh, any kind of instruction area as well because of the OER aspect. Should Would look public into. library people get anything out of it? No, Spark's an academic um, organization as far as I know. Uh, I don't know that we have any uh, members that are that are in public libraries yet, but you know, I think interest about the kind of stuff that we're working on occurs in so many different places that, that it would be interesting to see, you know, public libraries as part of, you know, some of the kinds of initiatives that we're seeing out of organizations like this. So we'll, but we'll see what happens. Scarlett, thanks for coming on. Good night.